Hello, and welcome to the December 2014 edition of the Lesbian Gay Law Notes podcast. I am Matt Skinner, Executive Director of Legal, the LGBT Bar Association of Greater New York. With me, as always, is Professor Art Leonard of New York Law School, the Chief Editor and Writer of Lesbian Gay Law Notes, the most comprehensive monthly publication covering the latest legal and legislative developments affecting the LGBT community here and abroad. Just a reminder, if you're listening to us on iTunes and enjoying our program, please do take a minute to write us highly so that we will continue to gain more listeners. All right, first up this month, we had a roller coaster a uh, couple of weeks again on the marriage equality front. Uh, our last podcast noted the big Sixth Circuit decision, but that's maybe a good place to start now since a lot of news flows from the fallout of that ruling. Okay, so, uh, and actually that puts us uh, a few days into the month of November, right. and we have events in November that predate that, but right. I'll go back to those because the big story right now is that petitions for certiorari are pending at the U.S. Supreme Court in five marriage equality cases, uh, four of them as a result of that Sixth Circuit decision. And uh, there is speculation that as early as January 9th, the Supreme Court may be considering at least one of those petitions, given the uh, state they're in. They were filed in mid-November, and the responses from the states are due mid-December, but Michigan has already filed the response and uh, Louisiana has already filed a response in the one non-Sixth Circuit case. Uh, Lambda Legal filed a petition during the month uh, to ask the Supreme Court to bypass the Fifth Circuit and take up the Louisiana case uh, where the uh, district court ruled against marriage equality. So those petitions are pending. Uh, Sometime in January, we're likely to find out whether the Supreme Court will hear a marriage equality case this term. And there, there are other developments uh, that suggests that it's likely. One is that back in September, Justice Ginsburg, speaking at the University of Minnesota Law School, said that uh, the court saw no great urgency, or at least she didn't see any great urgency, about taking a marriage equality case as long as the courts of appeals were all going the same way. Uh, With the Sixth Circuit decision uh, that was rendered early in November, we now have a split in the circuits. So Justice Ginsburg, at least, for one, we know, sees urgency. Uh, And in a public statement after the Sixth Circuit decision, uh, Justice Breyer, responding to questioning at a public forum, said, well, circumstances change. Uh, And it seems like we'd have Scalia and Thomas, based on what they said in uh, some denials of cert. Right. Scalia and Thomas have finally come out of the closet on this. uh, (laughs) Because... Everyone was trying to read tea leaves here when the Supreme Court announced the denials of cert in the cases from the Fourth and the Seventh and the Tenth Circuits without any recorded dissents. Uh, But it turns out that there were at least two members of the court who presumably argued in conference that they should have granted those petitions because in a subsequent case where the court turned down a petition Uh, presumably because there was no circuit split on the issue involved. Justice Thomas dissented. Justice Scalia joined in his dissent from the denial of cert, and he said, just because there's no circuit split doesn't mean we shouldn't take cases that are really important. And then he listed a few, including the marriage cases that had been turned down. Uh, So it seems clear that Justice Thomas and Justice Scalia think that the, the cases should have been taken even without a circuit split. So clearly there are two votes for cert on the the next marriage petition that comes up. Justice Ginsburg is probably a vote for it. You just need four. So assuming there's at least one more member of the court, the chances are excellent we'll have a cert grant. So just to sort of recap, the month of November, 
as you said, it's been a roller coaster month, although mainly ups. Right. A few downs, but Just mainly ups. Just the Sixth ups. Circuit was the down. So the first event in November to note is on November 4th, U.S. District Judge Daniel Crabtree in Kansas ruled in the case of Marie versus Moser that the Kansas ban on same-sex marriage violates the 14th Amendment. He stayed his decision until November 11th to give the state a chance to seek a stay from the Tenth Circuit or the Supreme Court. Uh, the Kansas Supreme Court, which had been scheduled to hear argument in a marriage equality case, Schmidt versus Moriarty, uh, put off its hearing, uh, leaving a stay in place while the federal case is being appealed to the Tenth Circuit. And uh, it's not giving away anything uh, to say that subsequently in the month of November, the Tenth Circuit turned down the request for a stay and the Supreme Court turned down the request for a stay. But I think that was the first case in which Justices Thomas and Scalia right. Uh, openly dissented from denying uh, the petition. Although we should note there's been plenty of pushback in Kansas from doing what yeah. they're supposed to. <laughs> uh, the, the, the situation in Kansas is, is difficult because Judge Crabtree uh, limited his relief to the particular named uh, officials. There were only two clerks involved yeah. as defendants in the case. Although there was another state official who was also involved in the case, yeah. the person who's in charge of administering the marriage license uh, process. But the state has been fighting tooth and nail to avoid implementing. So they've said that the decision only applies in those counties. Uh, there has been a uh, an amended complaint filed later in November by the ACLU adding more defendants to try to cover enough statewide officials to get a statewide ruling. So we'll see how that one turns out. So that was November 4th. November 5th was a big day in the city of St. Louis where a local state judge, Rex Burleson, ruled that Missouri's ban on same-sex marriage violates the 14th Amendment, and he refused to stay his decision. And Attorney General Chris Coster, who is a same-sex marriage supporter, announced that the state would appeal, but that he would not seek a stay. Uh, the decision only directly affected St. Louis. This isn't a federal judge. This is a state judge with localized jurisdiction. Uh, so in St. Louis, people can get marriage licenses. And this is the first state in the Eighth Circuit where we have an affirmative marriage ruling. Uh, so now that puts the Eighth Circuit in play, since this case will be appealed. Uh, then on November 5th, U.S. District Judge Robert Hinkle in Florida, who had issued a decision back in August holding the Florida ban unconstitutional, he had stayed his decision to see what the Supreme Court would do on the pending cert petitions. So on November 5th, he said, I'm going to stay my decision longer to January 6th, in order to give the state a chance to appeal, or rather January 5th, to order the state, uh, give the state a chance to appeal to the Fifth Circuit. And uh, to sort of jump dates again, uh, uh, rather the Eleventh Circuit, Florida's the Eleventh Circuit. Right. So, so to jump dates again, uh, the Eleventh Circuit, uh, early in December, said they're not going to stay it any further. If uh, the state of Florida wants to stay this any further pending appeal, they're going to have to get it from the Supreme Court. And this is an interesting development because, of course, the Eleventh Circuit hasn't ruled on the merits yet. So that, at least from that three-judge panel, is, is a signal to me that they think that uh, the plaintiffs are likely to prevail on the merits in that case. But then uh, I've shared this with, uh, with some friends who point out that it was a very friendly three-judge panel uh, that is not typical of the circuit. It's, it's a rather more liberal panel than is the norm for that circuit, so who knows? what's going to happen in the 11th Circuit. 
but then on uh, November 6th, as we've mentioned, the Sixth Circuit issued its ruling in a case affecting Ohio, Michigan, Tennessee, and Kentucky, in which uh, Circuit Judge Jeffrey Sutton, writing for the two-to-one majority of the panel, said that Baker versus Nelson precludes a lower federal court from ruling in favor of marriage equality, that the Supreme Court's decision back in 1972 that the issue of marriage equality did not pose a substantial federal question was still binding because, one, the Supreme Court has not expressly overruled or reversed Baker versus Nelson, and two, looking at Windsor, he said Windsor was not a 14th Amendment decision. Windsor was a Fifth Amendment decision about whether the federal government could discriminate between different kinds of marriages. Can I ask one thing, too? Why did the denials of cert in October not overrule Baker versus Nelson? I mean, because there was no language that came with them? Right. I mean, it just seems like they, they've also denied certain cases that went the other way. Right. So how in, can you read words, anything? Uh, Judge Sutton has been much criticized for his decision. Yeah. In fact, I, I just read a new law review article that goes on at great length about why Baker versus Nelson is no longer a controlling precedent. Yeah. Uh, but, uh, you know, he's taken the position, the hardline position, uh, that basically we don't have to decide this because the Supreme Court has already decided uh. it against the plaintiffs. And uh, that's why I am, I, I think, you know, whether that's an intellectually respectable position, it's at least a position that a lower federal court judge could plausibly take. Mm-hmm. And a few of them have. Not, not a whole lot, but a few of them have. Uh, but if that's the case, then the extended portion of his decision rejecting the plaintiff's case on the merits was dicta and shouldn't have any binding effect because it was unnecessary. If the court was precluded from ruling for plaintiffs by controlling Supreme Court authority, there was no reason for him to then go on and say that the state had a rational basis for denying marriage to same-sex couples. And uh, the dissent called them out on this and other things. And uh, Really rival Judge Posner for yes. snark. Uh, yeah, and, and said <laughs> if there's ever a dead letter, a case that's a candidate for being treated as a dead letter, it's Baker versus Nelson. Yeah. Uh, and uh, one could just quickly review the reason for that. At the time Baker versus Nelson was decided, the Supreme Court had never decided an equal protection case involving gay rights. Uh, at the time that Baker versus Nelson was decided, sodomy was illegal in almost every state. At the time Baker versus Nelson was decided, the Supreme Court hadn't even yet adopted heightened scrutiny for sex discrimination claims. And at the time Baker versus Nelson was decided, although the Supreme Court had decided Loving versus Virginia, it hadn't decided yet several of the other uh, marriage cases that expanded on Loving and that made explicit what was implicit in Loving, that there was a fundamental right to marry. So there are all these important Supreme Court developments, not to even mention, but we will, Romer versus Evans uh, in 1996, which was the first time that the court did rule in favor of gay plaintiffs in a marriage equality uh, in a equal protection, equal protection case. Yep. And then uh, Lawrence versus Texas striking down sodomy laws. And even though Windsor wasn't ruling on the 14th Amendment question, it was certainly suggesting that there's a substantial federal question presented when a government entity discriminates against same-sex couples. So, I mean, to say that Baker versus Nelson's holding that there was no substantial federal question is still binding is absurd. And I will say that. Yes, Judge Sutton's decision is absurd. But that was on November 6th. And uh, just the next day, we had a new development. On November 7th, U.S. District Judge Robert Chambers in West Virginia ruled in the case of McGee against Cole that West Virginia's ban violated the 14th Amendment. But that decision was sort of a formality. 
because West Virginia had caved in response to the Supreme Court's denial of cert in the Virginia case, because right. they're both in the Fourth Circuit, and they had started issuing marriage licenses a few days after the cert denial. So this was a mere formality in the case. Uh, then on November 7th, the Tenth Circuit denied the Kansas state petition. Also on November 7th, a U.S. district judge in Missouri ruled in Lawson versus Kelly that the same-sex marriage ban violated the 14th Amendment. And this was significant because uh, Judge Ortree Smith, who issued the ruling, had to confront the Eighth Circuit's 2006 ruling in Citizens for Equal Protection Against Bruning, which was a challenge that was brought to the Nebraska uh, ban on same-sex marriage. Uh, Nebraska had adopted through referendum a constitutional amendment banning same-sex marriages, which was attacked in that case, and the Eighth Circuit rejected the attack. Uh, Judge Smith pointed out that the Eighth Circuit was not presented with the question in that case whether same-sex couples have a right to marry under the 14th Amendment. The plaintiffs attacked the constitutional amendment as violating their sort of structural political rights to be able to go to the legislature and ask for marriage reform. Uh, they said it made it more difficult for gay people than other people to seek uh, a, a statute on the subject in their favor. And the Eighth Circuit had rejected that argument. But the Eighth Circuit pointed out that the plaintiffs are not asking us to determine whether same-sex couples have a right to marry. And so, Judge Smith said, the Bruning decision does not block me from ruling for plaintiffs in this case. It, it takes no position on the 14th Amendment issue. And so he determined to follow the trend, which is now very well established under the 14th Amendment. However, the case only involved as a defendant the clerk in one county. And so his order only went to that one county. And once again, this is, uh, as in the state case that was decided a few days earlier, this is Attorney General Chris Coster saying, we're going to appeal to the Eighth Circuit, of course, but we're not going to seek a stay. So now we have another county in Missouri. So, you know, do we count Missouri in the free state list? You know, people, the states where same-sex couples can marry, uh, we can sort of count them because anyone can go to uh, Kansas City or St. Louis and get married. And uh, then the question is, will their marriages be recognized elsewhere in the state? So far, state agencies are uh, being stubborn about this and saying not yet, uh, so that we may end up having separate litigation about that. So that was on November 7th. On November 12th, the Supreme Court denied the motion for a stay in the Kansas case, and so same-sex couples began to marry in Kansas, although... In certain counties, said, yeah. yeah. There's a kind of, I think we're up to 25 <laughs> counties <Yes>. now, <laughs> which is less than half the state by counties, but in terms of population, is more than half, because it includes several big cities. Yeah. Uh, also on November 12th, though, we got an important ruling in South Carolina from U.S. District Judge Richard Mark Gurgel in Condon against Haley, another 14th Amendment decision, uh, but he stayed it until November 20 to give the state an opportunity to seek uh, from the Fourth Circuit of the Supreme Court a stay. Neither the Fourth Circuit nor the Supreme Court was willing to grant the stay, Thomas and Scalia dissenting, and so the decision went into effect, and uh, same-sex couples are now marrying in South Carolina, and this completes the mopping-up operation in the Fourth Circuit. So now all the states in the Fourth Circuit have marriage equality. Uh, on November 12th, also, the, the Supreme Court denied Kansas emergency application for a stay. Uh, on November 14th, in the state of South Dakota, uh, U.S. District Judge Karen Schreier 
uh, also ruled that uh, citizens for equal protection against Bruning was no barrier to a ruling for the plaintiffs and that Baker versus Nelson did not preclude this ruling. In other words, the district judges in the Eighth Circuit are not persuaded by Judge Sutton's analysis in the Sixth Circuit in, uh, as to the effect of, of Baker. Uh, so she uh, issued a ruling, but uh, it was just a ruling on a motion to dismiss. It wasn't a uh, preliminary injunction or a grant of injunctive relief. The state had asked uh, her to rule on the motion to dismiss before it has to respond to the pending summary judgment motion. Mm -hmm. So now its response was supposed to be filed by late November, and we can anticipate sometime early in December probably a ruling on the preliminary injunction by Judge Schreier. And since her motion to dismiss made pretty clear where she thinks the case comes out, there's no question where the case is going to come out. And then on November 14th, as well, we started getting the petitions for cert filed with the Supreme Court from the Sixth Circuit case. Uh, the petitions from Ohio and uh, Tennessee were filed on November 14th, which is a Friday. On Monday, the 17th, petitions were filed from Michigan and uh, from Kentucky. So now we have petitions for certiorari on file from all four states in the Sixth Circuit. Uh, and the states had a month to respond. Uh, so far, we have a response on file from Michigan, but not from the other states. They're not required to respond. On November 18th, the next day, U.S. District Judge Michelle Childs in South Carolina ruled in the case of Braddock's against Haley that South Carolina's refusal to recognize out-of-state same-sex marriages was unconstitutional. There had already been a ruling by another federal district judge a few weeks earlier in South Carolina, so now South Carolina is falling into line. Uh, then on November 18th, the Ninth Circuit denied Alaska's request to take its appeal in the marriage equality case directly to an on-bank panel. Actually, the request sort of made sense because there is a three-judge panel decision in the Ninth Circuit, but there is no on-bank decision. And uh, the petition from Alaska said, it's sort of a waste of everyone's time for us to argue this before a three-judge panel because they would be bound by the prior three-judge panel decision. Why not take it on bank? But the court said, no, thank you. <laughs> and they issued a briefing schedule that makes it clear that the earliest this case would be argued would be maybe February or March. Uh, so that's the Alaska case. And meanwhile, of course, marriages go forward in Alaska because the uh, requests for a stay were denied. Uh, also, on November 19th, uh, U.S. District Judge Brian Morris in Montana ruled in Rolando versus Fox that the ban on same-sex marriages are constitutional, and he ended his decision by saying, this injunction will take effect immediately. So, they're, thereby anticipating that the state might ask for a stay, but they weren't going to get one. And since it's the Ninth Circuit, they didn't bother asking the circuit for a stay. Uh, so, although Montana does plan to file an appeal, uh, the marriage equality decision has gone into effect, and it is now possible everywhere in the Ninth Circuit for same-sex couples to get a marriage license. November 20th, new development, which we alluded to earlier, Lambda Legal filed a cert petition in the Supreme Court in the case of Robichaud versus George, asking the court to bypass the Fifth Circuit and directly take up the Louisiana marriage equality case. Those are rarely granted. 
I remember though, didn't uh, they do this in Windsor before they there had was the Second attempt. Circuit decision? There yeah, was an attempt. Well, there was uh, in in Windsor there was a uh, petition for cert before decision. Yeah. And also, I think they were in one or two of the other cases. Yeah. I think one out of the uh, federal district court in San Francisco. Yeah. Uh, but they didn't grant those. They granted right. one of the circuit cases. Yeah. Uh, the grant, well, actually, the grant in Windsor came in December of uh, 2012. Yeah. Uh, after the Second Circuit had ruled. Right. Because the Second Circuit ruled just shortly after the petition was filed. Yeah. It's really strange. Uh, sort of everything was out of chronological yeah. order there. So that was November 20th, right? November 24th, next development, U.S. District Judge Dale Kimball in uh, Utah made permanent his injunction in Evans versus State of Utah, which requires the state to recognize the marriages that took place before the Supreme Court granted its January 6, 2014 stay in the case of Kitchen against Herbert. So over a thousand same-sex couples got married over the space of two weeks late in December, early January 2012-2013. And this litigation has been going on because the state was refusing to recognize those marriages uh, now it's sort of academic because the Supreme Court, having denied certain Kitchen versus Herbert, the decision went into effect. Uh, so those marriages will be recognized retroactively. Uh, then on November 25th, the next day, we had uh, important developments in two states, in Arkansas and in Mississippi. We got federal district court judges ruling in favor of plaintiffs. Uh, Judge Christine Baker in the Arkansas case, Jernigan against Crane, stayed her ruling pending the state's expected appeal to the Eighth Circuit. U.S. District Judge Carlton Reeves in Mississippi in campaign for Southern Equality against Bryant uh, only granted a two-week stay. He said, you know, ask the Fifth Circuit if you want a longer stay. And uh, so the state filed a petition with the Fifth Circuit noting their appeal and also asking for a stay pending a ruling, uh, and the Fifth Circuit agreed to stay the case, uh, that was uh, just December 4th. And at the same time, they agreed to assign the appeal to the same panel of the Fifth Circuit that's hearing oral argument on January 9th in the Texas and Louisiana cases. Uh, but they didn't uh, file the motion to consolidate the cases for, the, for a decision just to uh, put them before the same panel. They also granted the state's motion for expedited appeal. So one suspects it's possible that the panel will hear their argument on the same day. Okay, the next day, November 26th, the ACLU of Kansas filed their amended complaint seeking to expand the defendant's list in uh, Marie versus Moser in order to get statewide effect on the Kansas ruling. Uh, and also on November 26th, District Judge Smith in Missouri refused to lift the stay of his decision in Lawson versus Kelly noting that the state was planning to appeal to the Eighth Circuit, which has not yet ruled in a marriage equality case. Uh, then we come into December. On December 3rd, this was a startling development. The Eleventh Circuit denied a motion by Florida to stay the federal district court's injunction in Brenner against Armstrong. Uh, this is the case that was decided back in August by Judge Hinkle, who had at first stated to see what would happen on the cert petitions from the other circuits, then stated again, uh, pending appeal in the 11th Circuit, but he only stated through a specific date of January 5th, and the 11th Circuit in their decision said that the stay will be lifted at the end of the day on January 5th. So the ball is now back in Florida's court. Are they going to ask the Supreme Court to stay pending their appeal in the 11th Circuit? 
and how the court responds to such a petition will let all of us tea leaf readers have some clues as to where they're trending on this. I mean, they have denied every petition for a stay since October 6th. Uh, Petitions that came from the Tenth Circuit and the Fourth Circuit and the Ninth Circuit, they've denied them because it would be inconsistent to stay those marriage rulings as long as the court was allowing the marriage rulings in those cases to go into effect. Uh, but what happens now when they're asked for a stay in a state where there is no circuit court ruling? It would be very interesting to see how this turns out. Uh, so that's where we are. I mean, we've got five petitions for cert at the Supreme Court. Uh, SCOTUS blog, which specializes in reporting on what's happening at the Supreme Court, has listed the Michigan case as a potential topic for discussion at the court's January 9th conference. So on the same day that the Fifth Circuit is hearing oral argument in the cases from Texas and Louisiana and maybe Mississippi, the Supreme Court may be discussing whether to grant the cert petition for Michigan. Yeah. So we're really moving here. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And if they grant the petition uh, at the January 9th conference, that would be announced on January 12th, and that would probably be in time to hold oral argument this term and issue a decision by June. Yeah. Uh, if they decide to wait until they get the state responses from all the other states in the circuit before they decide which one to take, which might be prudent on their part, uh, it would depend whether the argument calendar is filled up for the year at that point. In terms of gaming this out, though, aren't, uh, I believe, Tennessee and Ohio are just recognition cases, right? Right. They're not quite, uh, it seems to me they wouldn't take just a recognition case after all that's happened. Yeah, that wouldn't make sense. Uh, So uh, the Michigan case is sort of prime here. Uh, And you've got the Attorney General and the Governor are both adversarial. We don't have that issue anymore with Michigan. Although they both are, they're urging that the court take the case. Right. You know, they, they file a responsive papers defending the Sixth Circuit's decision and saying that they think this is a political question. It should be left to the legislature of the state, the people, yeah. through their amendment process, and uh, the federal court should stay out. But they said it's a very important question, and we certainly think that it needs an answer. Yeah. Even if the answer is what we're asking for, for the Supreme Court to say that it's a political question. It should be decided one way or the other. Yeah. Uh, and, and, you know, thinking back to Justice Thomas's objection to the court not granting cert in, this, in the cases from the other circuits, I can really see the point that the uh, state governments in those states and the people in those states who voted for those amendments really should have had a chance to present their case in the Supreme Court and, and not to have to suddenly change and allow same-sex marriage without a definitive appellate ruling. It, it seems to me that what the court did in denying those cert petitions was not really the right thing to do. Yeah. I mean, even though I think it's a great thing that yeah. we got marriage uh, as of that date right. in all those states. Well, and lots of people have said, how do you put the uh, toothpaste back in the tube right. if they were to go the other way in the Michigan case? Are you going to unmarry all these people? Yeah. And in Michigan, what, about 300 couples have, have married. Yeah. And there's a pending... I, uh, I don't know if it's been filed yet, but there's a potential lawsuit there as to whether the state should recognize those marriages. All right, so stay tuned, everybody. Uh, We will take a short break, and when we return, we will completely change gears and discuss the criminal law doctrine of repugnancy in the context of a transgender hate crime. (laughs) 
We are back discussing People versus Dali, a decision from New York's highest court setting aside a hate crime conviction following the murder of a transgender woman. Art, can you tell us about this case? Yeah, this is, uh, this is a case that presents the problem of how do you present the issue to a jury in a hate crimes case in such a way as to produce a verdict that is not inconsistent internally and, and thus subject to challenge. Uh, the background of the case is uh, a transgender woman named Letitia Green was sitting in her car minding her own business, and this uh, guy comes along, uh, Dwight, uh, is it Dwight? Yeah, Dwight DeLee, and shouting homophobic epithets and anti-trans epithets and uh, killed her and was prosecuted uh, for second-degree homicide and second-degree homicide as a hate crime as well as a weapons possession charge. Uh, and the jury was uh, was charged with those offenses and was, of course, advised that manslaughter is less included to homicide. And the jury came up with a verdict where they convicted Mr. DeLee on uh, the manslaughter charge as a hate crime and on the weapons charge, but they acquitted him on the simple manslaughter charge. Uh, and his attorney promptly raised the question, uh, well, isn't that inconsistent? Because if they acquitted him on the manslaughter charge, it means they didn't find for the state on all the essential elements beyond a reasonable doubt on manslaughter. And how could they acquit on manslaughter but convict on manslaughter as a hate crime? That yeah. You sort of have to have a conviction of manslaughter. Uh, and the trial judge decided not to recall the jury and recharge them and have them reconsider, but instead to accept their verdict. And he sentenced Mr. Dalee to 25 years in the clink. So uh, there was an appeal, and the appellate division said, under the well-established New York doctrine of repugnancy, an in internally inconsistent verdict could be attacked on that ground. And if they acquitted on manslaughter then the conviction on manslaughter as a hate crime had to be vacated. And the, uh, the third department said, and that means we have to, dis or the fourth department rather, said we have to vacate the conviction and dismiss the charges. And this case was appealed by the state up to the Court of Appeals. And the Court of Appeals said, well, technically the fourth department was correct. This is a repugnant verdict in the sense that they're both acquitting and convicting on the same crime in the same verdict, essentially. They found the element, the, the extra element necessary to find bias, but they didn't expressly uh, convict on the four elements of manslaughter because they acquitted on manslaughter. But, the court said, we don't think it's appropriate to just dismiss the case. I mean, this jury did convict on manslaughter as a hate crime. That must mean that on some level they thought that the elements were met and so they should be given a second crack, or a new jury should be given a second crack at the case. But, of course, because he was acquitted of simple manslaughter, he can't be retried under the double jeopardy rule. Mm -hmm. But he can be retried on manslaughter as a bias crime, mm -hmm. which seems sort of odd. Yeah. But, but they say the remedy here is to affirm the uh, appellate division, but to send the case back to the prosecutor and say, you can present this to a grand jury, but you can't represent the homicide counts. And you can only represent on manslaughter as a bias crime. So a second jury, if they find no bias, they can't convict us on manslaughter. Okay. 
uh, and uh, a concurring opinion contains a lengthy discussion of how to charge the jury in the case. They said, make it very clear to the jury that in order to convict of a hate crime, they also have to convict of the underlying offense that's the basis for the hate crime. And make it clear. I mean, the, the trial judge had given a, an instruction that evidently was confusing to the jury, and they thought they could acquit on the one if they convicted on the other. All right, some interesting uh, criminal law doctrines at play there. Uh, we'll take another short break, and when we return, we will be discussing a decision striking down Michigan's statute banning same-sex partner benefits for public employees. All right, we're back discussing the case of Bassett versus Snyder, a decision from a federal district court in Michigan that seems like a bit of a throwback given where we are today with marriage, uh, but important nonetheless. Can you tell us about it, Art? Yeah, a bit of a throwback, but not in Michigan because, right. well, this is, this is sort of weird. What happened is in 2004, Michigan amended its state constitution as part of the wave of amendments in that presidential election year uh, to ban uh, same-sex marriages, but they went further. This was one of those ban plus amendments. It said uh, the union of one man and one woman in marriage shall be the only agreement recognized as a marriage or similar union for any purpose. And that was later construed by the state courts to mean that you couldn't have domestic partnerships or civil unions being recognized or uh, a, uh, either the state or a municipality couldn't ha adopt a registry or a partnership thing and uh, endow them with the benefits of marriage or anything. And there were many public employers in the state that were providing uh, benefits to same-sex partners of their employees. So they developed a workaround. Instead of having registered partners or civil unions, they adopted the concept of the other qualifying adult. And they said that an unmarried employee may designate another qualified adult to receive benefits. And one of the qualifications, I think, was that they live together and stuff like that. Mm -hmm. uh, but uh, they set it up in such a way that it wouldn't be considered a uh, similar union to a marriage. All right. So this was challenged now. And while this challenge was pending, uh, another federal district court in Michigan held that the ban on same-sex marriage, the 2004 amendment, was unconstitutional. Um, and this case just sort of sat there while that case was on appeal to the Sixth Circuit. And then, as we know... Uh, early in November, the Sixth Circuit ruled and rejected the challenge to the Michigan marriage law. So the Michigan marriage constitutional amendment uh, banning uh, both same-sex marriages and other unions recognizing same-sex partners uh, went back into effect or remained in effect. And so now district judge in this case had to rule. And so David M. Lawson, the district judge, uh, issued his ruling on November 12th, the week after the Sixth Circuit had rejected the challenge to the Michigan Amendment. And he said, there's a basic equal protection violation here. It's, it's sort of interesting. It's sort of flying in the face of the Sixth Circuit, which had rejected an equal protection challenge to the marriage ban. But, of course, he wasn't dealing with a marriage ban. He was dealing with a specific statute that was enacted by the Michigan legislature to invalidate these other qualifying adult plans. Yep. So they passed a statute that was specifically targeted on same-sex couples, yeah. presented a clear equal protection issue, and he said, okay, I'm in the Sixth Circuit. I can't give heightened scrutiny here. But he says, 
it seems to me, and you look at the legislative history of this statute, it was enacted out of bias against same-sex couples. It was enacted specifically for the purpose of excluding them from rights and benefits. And the justifications stated by the state are sort of ridiculous, and therefore I'm going to find it unconstitutional. I imagine the state will be appealing this to the Sixth Circuit, their favorite place. (laughs) All right. Well, we'll take our last short break, and when we return for our Of Note segment, we'll be discussing a new exception to the presumption of parenthood for married same-sex couples in New York. All right. We're back to wrap up with our Of Note segment for this edition. Art, what have we learned about the parental presumption for the children of married same-sex couples when one half of a couple creates a child as part of a heterosexual affair during a brief breakup? Well, that's pretty specific. <laughs> yeah. uh, what, we, what we learned is that there's a New York judge who thinks it's inappropriate to indulge the presumption that the same-sex partner of the woman who gave birth to a child is going to be the child's parent when there's actually a guy on the scene who everyone concedes caused the pregnancy. Uh, This was not a donor insemination situation. Uh, The judge said she has no problem with applying the presumption in a donor insemination case where there's no one claiming uh, paternal rights. But the, the whole point of the presumption is to try to avoid challenges to the legitimacy of a child. But she thinks in this case, to allow that presumption to be used to defeat the right of the man to seek a declaration of parental rights would be wrong, Uh, especially when the birth mother concedes that while she was briefly separated from her wife, she had an affair with this guy and became pregnant. Uh, The fact that she got back with her wife before the child was born, uh, the judge said, doesn't automatically convey to the wife parental rights, even though she may have assisted with the birth and has uh, played a parental role with the child. The problem is, as the judge pointed out, New York law doesn't allow for the possibility of three simultaneous legal parents. Which California now does. California does, and and this is something, and the judge more or less says our family law has to be brought up to date, but I don't think I can do it. I think the legislature has to do it. Uh, The name of the case is QM versus BC and JS. It was decided October 21st by the New York Supreme Court of Monroe County. All right. Well, thank you for that uh, summary, Art. That's all the time we have for today. Thanks for listening. To read the latest issue of Law Notes, please become a member of Legal or a Law Notes subscriber by visiting www.le-gal.org. This and future podcasts can also be found online at iTunes or at legal.podpean.com. Please take a moment to give us lots of stars if you like the podcast. Follow Legal on Twitter at LGBT Bar NY or find us on Facebook. Thanks again. Happy holidays, and we will see you in 2015.